Last week, Justin Trudeau made a speech on International Abortion Day. Now, we're going to read that speech to you in just a moment. We're going to read it in its a section of it in its entirety. Now, some of the verbiage that he used was quite confusing. You read it, you're like, what, what is he really saying here? So we had to change a word or two. We stuck to the definition of the words that he's using. We just added some clarity for, for the reader's sake. So here it goes. Here's Justin Trudeau's speech. Today, on International Safe Killing Day, we reaffirm our unwavering commitment to uphold a woman's fundamental right to kill. No one should ever be forced to carry an unwanted baby. And the government of Canada is unequivocal in that approach pursuit. Here in Canada, we have had access to safe and legal murder for almost 35 years, thanks to decades of hard-fought communist activism. Murder is covered under our socialist death care system, but there is still more work to be done to improve accessibility, particularly in rural and remote communities. In May, the Government of Canada announced funding to support civil society organizations, such as the CCP, and Action for Canada and Sexual Dysfunction and Activism to crush opposing views in the name of rights and National Baby Killing Federation of Canada to strengthen safe access and inclusive extermination services of humans, including by offering financial assistance to cover travel costs to those seeking to kill babies and training for healthcare providers who offer death services. Killing unwanted humans is an essential healthcare service when performed following medical guidelines, which are never safe. Fortunately, all baby killings performed worldwide are unsafe, and these unsafe killings of unwanted humans are the leading cause of death among birthing people. Tragically, Tragic and preventable deaths will continue as long as women are denied the rights in developing countries in which we are still pushing our imperialistic colonialism. With funding to improve access to ripping babies limb from limb, post-killing care, and family destruction. Today, we reflect on the progress we have made and the work that still needs to be done to ensure every birthing person has access to the brutal killing of their own offspring, including standing up to those barbarians who want to take us backwards, those people who believe that human life actually has value, to those at home and around the world continuing to fight for the right to violently rip and take away the life of another innocent human being? No that we will always stand up for your right to tear babies limb from limb. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. It is episode 302. It is October 6, 2022. Welcome back to the show. This is actually that intro is actually a speech that Prime Minister Trudeau gave just last week on September 28th. Of course, we changed the words abortion to killing. Uh, 
and some other, you know, satirical things. But if you if you read the actual speech that's in the show notes, you'll see that this is this is what he said. The whole of, of what we just shared there is actually what he said in this speech. And it is just atrocious. It is atrocious to even put the word safe and abortion together. Abortions are never safe. Abortion is the ripping of an innocent human life limb from limb. And the thought, the thought that a a woman or a man or anyone could arbitrarily decide that one life is worth something and another life is not worth something is absolutely insane. This is the postmodern irrationality, the insanity, the wickedness. I tell you, it is pure wickedness. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And and then here at the end, he says, including standing up to those who would oppose us and wants to take us backwards. Obviously, I changed that to standing up to those barbarians who want to take us backwards. But the thought that you or I who believe that a human right has value, we are the we are the ones who are barbarians. We are the ones who are seen as closed minded and backward thinking. Because we, we don't believe that you're just a sack of chemicals. Oh, gets me riled up. Also, last week, <laughs> breaking news, Berkeley de- decides to develop Jewish-free zones. Nine different law student groups in the University of California at Berkeley Law School have begun this new academic year by a mending its bylaws to ensure that they will never invite any speaker that supports Israel or Zionism. And these are not just groups that represent a small fringe fraction of the student population, but they include women of Berkeley Law, Asian Pacific American Law Students Association, Middle East and North Africa Law Students Association, law students of African descent and queer caucus, Berkeley Law Dean Irwin, a progressive Zionist himself, has observed that he himself would be banned under the standard, as would 90% of the Jewish students on the campus. This is anti, this is not just anti-Zionism. This is anti-Semiticism. You can't just say, oh, well, no, it's, I'm, I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just, you know, anti-Zionist. And really, I mean, I want to just like, I'm sorry, I'm a little speechless. There are actually, there are still actually people out there who believe that Nazi Germany, that Hitler did great things to the world, that had great ideas. And it stems from this idea that Jews are bad, that Jews are wicked, that Jews are evil. Back in, back in the day, a hundred years ago, signs were being posted, no dogs, no Jews. The anti-Semitic racism. The world is quickly approaching such a day again. There will come a day where the nations again turn against Israel, turn against the Jews. And we say, never forget, never forget the atrocities of the Holocaust. And yet we are quickly and swiftly forgetting Oh, my. 
it is just is is speech. I'm speechless to see this happening across America. The blatant, the blatant discrimination against people, and it's celebrated by many. It's embraced by many. And it, it will lead to another genocide. Just as abortion is a genocide, this, this ideology of this Nazi, neo-Nazi ideology that would push for the extinction of the Jews for genocide, it is, a, it is abhorrent. And the fact that uh, universities in America would even tolerate such talk is incredible. Now, of course, these groups are making these arguments that, well, this is, this is free speech. We have free speech, and because we have free speech, we can stop other people's speech. But free speech doesn't work that way. Free, the way that free speech works is that you cannot impose upon other people's speech. You cannot impede upon other people's speech. You cannot discriminate because someone else has a different idea than you. That is free speech. So this idea that you can ban people from your campus because of their, their race or their belief or their ideology, you can say, well, you can't show up here, actually goes against the freedom of speech. It's not for the freedom of speech. Speaking of freedom of speech, the one and only Musk has decided to actually go with, through with his deal to buy Twitter. If you remember months ago, Elon Musk decided to buy Twitter at $54.20 a share, which is a, a large 24% premium from today's price. Obviously, it jumped up since the, the ruling or the, the, the announcement that Musk made. But he's been like a, you know, a, a boyfriend with cold feet trying to figure out after he's popped the question whether or not he really wants to marry this girl, and largely because Twitter wasn't disclosing how many of their accounts are bots. And it, it seems to be that a large portion of Twitter accounts are just walking spam bots, walking dead. Uh, and it looked like for a long time that Musk was not going to go with through with this. I'm actually surprised that it is going through. We've we talked about it early on when he made the announcement, and then we, we didn't really mention it very much since then because he was just flip-flopping back and forth. Is he going to do the deal? Is he not? Is he going to do it? It looks like he is. Now he's not. But finally, he is pulling the trigger on it. Now, there's, of course, more controversy around it on both sides. The, the conservative side is waking up and saying, well, it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. It's just another oligarch ruling the, the community square which can be both positive and negative. Now, uh, some of that comes from our, our Western democratic worldview or ideology that democracy is the best form of government. Now, um, America is not a democracy. It is a republic, which means it is not just the majority rule, the majority votes. It's, it's not how it works in America. There are different levels of checks and balances so that so that not one person or one party can have too much power or too much control. 
also the way that it works is that you have representatives and there's the executive branch in America. And so it's not just it's not a pure democracy like a parliamentarian. It's a republic in America. The problem that to Tocqueville uh, writes about Tocqueville was a, a political philosopher. And he studied America. And after going through America, he said, there's, there's some traps that are here in this democracy, like all democracy. And that's the, the tyranny of the majority. And the tyranny of the majority happens when a majority of people come together and decide something that's tyrannical and they push it forward. Just because you have a democracy does not mean that it is an upright and standing nation. Now, the other side of the coin is you can have a, a monarchy where you can have a, a king who rules over a nation, and that king can be tyrannical, can be totalitarian, or they can be good and just. You can have a good and a just king. And right now, the way that we look at the media landscape, we look at, we look at Twitter, and we can say that this has been a, a, a tyranny of many sorts. You, you see people being kicked off left and right even though it's owned by many different shareholders. It's not just owned by one oligarch, not just one person. So if, when, when Musk comes in and buys out the company, if he takes it private, we will have to see, will he be a good king of that town square or a bad king of that town square? Now, I've heard commentators say, you know, this doesn't really solve the problem, and I agree with them. It's not going to solve the problem because people are still evil. People are still wicked. Musk is not the, the savior of mankind. He has his own issues, and we can look at uh, extensive things in Tesla and see that maybe it's not the best company in the world, the best company culture in the world. So will Musk be a righteous and a just and a kind king of the, the town square. And it's also a mistake to think that the town square could possibly be owned by the majority. There needs to be some sort of checks and balances in place when it comes to these, these public forums where we're all engaging. These public forums that are, that are so large that they really do operate as a town square. They really do operate as a, as a place where Everyone comes to talk together to debate ideas and subjects. How do you do that well? Well, it will take someone, maybe it's Musk, maybe he'll be able to pull it off, who transforms it by giving, by raising up judges, by, by putting the authority into the hands of many that can rule justly rather than just being a, a king. I hope that's what he ends up doing. I hope that it's not just him running the show, and I hope that he's able to transform transform that marketplace, that open square, into a, a place that is productive to society again. Now, Musk, as we know, he's the richest or one of the richest men in the world, depends on the day. But even the richest man in the world is not going to be able to solve, or the richest men, if you take the top 100 richest men in the world, it's not going to be able to solve America's debt problem of $31 trillion. America's debt tops off at $31 trillion. Un, an un, it's a staggering number. 
31 trillion. You try to do some some math on that to see how much each American citizen would own or would owe. And the math comes out to an extraordinary amount of money. If, if America is going to ever try to pay off their national balance and national debt. And if you think if you think that this recession that is coming is not going to be bad, it's not going to affect the world. Then we have we have another thing coming for us because every every analyst is saying this is this is going to be the bad one. This is going to be the one that really shakes the world when it comes to a, a global meltdown. Well, this week, that meltdown was exacerbated by OPEC as oil prices have fallen from about 120 down to 80 in early June because of fears of a global recession coming. Now, when, when a global recession coming, it's not just that some few rich people around the world have their 401ks hit. It is the poor people around the world who end up starving, who end up losing their homes. So this is something that is going to affect millions and millions of people worldwide, not just those who are living in the top 1% in, in Europe and America, but it affects people all the way across Asia who lose their jobs because America or the West is not buying their products. It's not importing their products because the, the economy is so suppressed. Well, on Wednesday, a group of, of OPEC plus or powerful oil producers gathered together and decided to reduce oil production by 2 million, do- 2 million barrels a day starting in November. Now, this is the very opposite of what the Biden administration was asking OPEC to do. The Biden administration is in a bind with oil prices going up across America, which is ironic because they're shutting down pipelines. The first thing he does, shut down, shuts down pipelines. He's trying to move away from, car- from carbon and, renew- and, uh, and fossil fuels. So they won't allow new drilling on their own land, on American soil. And yet, they're asking the Middle East to pump more oil. Well, the the Biden administration said, in light of today's action, the Biden administration will also consult with Congress and additional tools and authorities to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. The statement added that OPEC's announced OPEC plus announcement served as a reminder of why it's so critical that the United States reduces its reliance on foreign sources of fossil fuels. Yes, exactly. But why have they hamstrung themselves on producing their own oil when America has the ability to do that? Instead, Biden is, is going and begging to the Middle East and right now, America is not in the greatest standings with Saudi Arabia for a number of reasons. As America's interest, interests have begun to shift in the globe, They're, they are shifting away from the Middle East. And we talked about this all last year with, with what happened in Afghanistan and what happened with America pulling out missile batteries from Saudi Arabia that was protecting uh, Riyadh and Saudi from 
drone strikes and uh, scud missiles from being shot from the Houthis um, in Yemen across a city of nine million people, Riyadh, as this proxy war, war between Iran and Saudi Arabia moves forward. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society, we have exchanged truth for lies and reasons for postmodern irrationality. The absurd finally makes sense. Well, this story broke a couple days ago out of Surrey in the UK. And a th- the story goes like this. There is a, a pastor's wife named Caroline Faro, mother of five. And she shared a lengthy thread on Twitter detailing how she had this experience with the Surrey police. Two police officers reportedly forced their way into her home, knocked on her door. She opened the door. She's cooking dinner. They forced her way into their home and they says, you're under arrest. And she said, do you have a warrant? And they said, we don't need one. Reportedly, Ms. Farrow claimed that they replied, We don't need one. This all started, allegedly, from a series of anonymous posts that were shared on a website, Kiwi Farms, in June. Mrs. Farrow was accused of posting malicious content and harassing others on an online platform, supposedly around LGBTQ trans issues, supposedly. The police come in. They arrest her. They take her out. They search her. They search her socks to make sure that she doesn't have drugs or something hidden in her socks. They seize electronic devices from her house and from her husband's parish next door that her autistic son uses for homeschooling. They seize her her electronic material without a warrant. No warrant. They take her stuff. They take her down to be questioned at the police station concerning posts, posts which she then says, that wasn't even my material. I didn't post that. I didn't even post these things. Now, this is just totally, totally insane that in the UK, the quote unquote free world, someone can be arrested by the thought police for posting Offensive, possibly offensive material online. I, I misgendered someone. Oh, you're offended? You're going to come and have me arrested now because I misgendered someone. Is that a crime? Offending someone, hurting someone's feelings is now a, is now a crime. Well, <laughs> the Surrey police, they, they put out a statement. They put out a statement saying this, there is a significant commentary on social media around the perceived circumstances behind this investigation. We do not have the freedom of detailing every stage of our inquiry or the specifics of an allegation on social media as it is critical. We do not preempt or pre or prejudice any further proceedings at this stage. When we receive an allegation of a crime in this instance, one where a grossly offensive message is said to have been communicated, it is our job to assess it alongside any available evidence to identify if an offense has been committed. 
If it has, we gather evidence, further evidence, and carry out an investigation to prove or disprove the allegation. That is exactly the process that has been followed in this case. The investigation into these allegations is very much ongoing, and the relevant inquiries are being carried out. We have a duty to protect the integrity of this investigation, so we will not be running, we will not be providing a running commentary on this case. AKA, we ain't going to tell you a single thing, but we're going to do what we want in the name of justice. Now, my questions, my, my natu natu natural questions to this case is, was she actually arrested? Or was she just taken to be questioned? It, 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 the fact that they were able, however, and this is again from, from my American purview, where the police cannot just come in and seize your electronic devices without a warrant. The fact that they did not have an, a warrant to seize electronic devices and search them. This is the free world of the thought police. Where if you post something that is offensive, if you offend someone, you're going to be arrested. Well, Pharaoh went on an interview detailing a little bit of, of her story and previous experiences that she has had when she's come into these encounters with the LGBTQIAA plus community activist community. You know, I almost got um, prosecuted because I misgendered um, Susie Green's child. Uh, and I called out uh, the fact that Susie Green had taken her, her Zen son to Thailand on his 16th birthday to have all this surgery. And I called it castration and mutilation and, you know, abusive. Now, of course, that was very strong words, but I used those words because I wanted people to be aware that when we're talking about trans transitioning of children, that we are talking about very severe, long-lasting, permanent uh, measures which lead to lifelong sterility. Um, you know, this, this is major, major surgery. This isn't just putting on a dress. This is, you know, having, having sex organs removed. And I found myself under investigation uh, by the police for that. Um, like Graham was, I was sued in the High Court twice for £100,000 each time. You know, the, the cases went away because um, there was no case. Uh, I was threatened with being sued a third time in January by the same activist. And, and the problem is, is that uh, these people are using the police force and, you know, the judicial yeah. system to, to do the, you know, formally harass others for you. And the reason, as Patrick say that, said, that they want to take away your family, your children, your, your job. I mean, I've, I've been really, really lucky in that regard, in that you yeah. know, I've had such wonderful, supportive employers. But the reason they want to do that is pour encourager les autres, you know, in order to, right. to show ordinary women what happens when they start okay. speaking up. To show ordinary women what happens when they start speaking up. Intimidation. They are weaponizing the police force, they're weaponizing the judicial system. This really is, it's, it's akin to the Spanish Inquisition, where the, the religious church weaponized politics and the police to go and do their bidding, to go and intimidate people who were opposing the, their Catholicist activism, burning people at the stake, torturing people, their political opponents weaponizing the police, which, which ought to be a, a tool of, of justice, not a tool of intimidation. But th 
the issue is that this movement is a religion. This movement, this progressive movement of LGBTQ, of uh, of uh, uh, of progressivism when it comes to to abortion, the 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 progressivism when it comes to the climate catastrophe that we're in. This is all wrapped up into the same bundle, which is being exported from the West as a new imperialist ideology to hamstring nations, to destroy nations, and it is a religion. It is a cult religion. And it's being weaponized. The, the police is being weaponized by this religion. You see, across the world, police wearing the rainbow flag. Now, the rainbow was something that was taken from Judeo-Christian faiths. And it's been used to essentially stand in the face of that, to essentially say, no way, we are going to spit in the face of, of everything that the rainbow originally stood for. The rainbow came from the story of Noah, where the world was wicked and violent, and, and people were, had no regard for justice or truth, except one man, Noah and his family. And afterwards, God destroys the entire earth with a flood, as the story goes. And when the, the flood is over and the rains are over, there's a first rainbow and it's a promise that God would not destroy all of mankind again through a flood. And instead, they've, they've opted that, they've commandeered that, they've taken that symbol over a symbol of promise and said, you know what, actually, we're going to use this very symbol to say we are going to return to our wickedness and we're going to do whatever we want. And now this ideology is being used by politicians and police. The fact that you can f that an, an American embassy can fly a rainbow flag next to the American flag, it says something. It says that we are no longer a, a, a nation as America, we are no longer a nation that is about liberty and equality for all. We are now a nation that has opted into this religious cult ideology that we are going to actively push around the globe. This is our policy. This is what we're doing. Suit in the UK, even this, this photo here of Surrey, this is from the Surrey Police Twitter of them. Wearing rainbow flags next to their badge. It says something. It says, this is the policy that we are going to enforce. We are going to enforce LGBTQ policy agendas because we have opted in to the cult. And it is a cult. It is a cult. And they are going to continue to press and press and intimidate just as they intimidated this woman by invest, arresting her in front of her children for posting comments that were offensive. The thought police. George Orwell was right in 1984. He just missed it by a couple decades. Well, this show is brought to you by listeners like you. This is a value for value podcast. If you get value out of the show, we ask that you give value back to the show with a measure that you got value out of it. You can do so by visiting lucasrobot.com backslash support or 
you can stream Bitcoin as you listen on apps like Podfriend and Sphinx. You can also support the show by getting my book, Anchor, The Discipline to Stop Drifting. This book I wrote in a time of my life where I was drifting. My, the metrics, the algorithm for my life was all messed up. And I began to realize that the path that I was on was one of absolute and total despair. It was not going to ever get me to where I wanted to go. So I, I took a break. I paused and I write this book, wrote this book many years ago now, but I still think about the principles, the actionable principles that I talk about in this book every day. Don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Well, today we have a clip to start this segment, uh, an interview with Matt Frazier on the James Smith podcast. And Matt Frazier, for those who don't know, uh, is five-time fittest man in the world CrossFit champion, and he is detailing something that I have experienced myself, this feeling of when you hit milestones, you actually feel quite empty. You feel quite dissatisfied rather than the ability to really celebrate and relish and have these massive milestones in our life mean something. Here's James Smith and Matt Frazier. It's James who starts talking. And we were like, one day we're going to have a million followers. Yeah. And we're like, Jeff. How crazy is that? If we keep this up for another year, we'll hit a million. And we're like, let's do this. Let's plan this. The day it hit was one of the most hollow days of my life where, if anything, I actually felt less happy than usual. Mm -hmm. And then I was beating myself up. I was like, you prick. You worked so long to get to this point where you're supposed to be happy. Why are you feeling hollow? And then I, I kind of excused it as an arbitrary milestone. And, oh, you know, 10 million would be good. Or, you know, yep. okay, now let's, let's work on your YouTube because YouTube sucks. And the day I'm supposed to be happy, I'm tearing myself down on something else but i'm grateful to the emotions of the way i see those things but then in the other sense it becomes very difficult to fully appreciate those wins on the way yeah so so identical to your story of reaching reaching that milestone and being like it was a hollow day the first crossfit games i won i hit the finish line i've been pursuing this this goal this dream for a couple of years now and i remember I, I specifically remember crossing the finish line on the last event. It just, boom, final stamp of approval, you won. You're the fittest man in the world. And and it was, I, I don't want to say like a fake celebration, but it was forced. And I remember that night thinking like, oh, I thought I would feel different. I've been chasing this thing for so long. I thought like internally I would level up to a new emotion of happiness. And mm. then I realized like, oh, I'm the same person. There's no emotional change. There's no internal feeling of success. Vanity. This is what we call just the striving after wind and vanity. So many self-help entrepreneurial gurus talk about this. I I've talked about it myself. This pursuit of a goal, 
and then you reach the goal and you find out that that goal, that milestone was arbitrary. It's empty. And instead, the the new age way to speak about it, and maybe it's not totally new age, but it's this way that we talk about it today, which is, well, don't pursue the goal, pursue the pursuit itself. The pursuit is the pursuit. So the, the, the pursuing the goal, it's not the goal that we're after, but it's the chase. And we begin to put on a pedestal work itself. We begin to idolize work. And we, be, we, we create a cycle and a system in our life where the, it, it's, it's, a, it's not the destination that matters. It's the journey that it takes to get there. Like, okay, yeah, sure. That, that is the, the ends don't justify the means. Yes. And you should enjoy the process and getting to wherever you're going. Yes. But if you set your life up in a way where your idol, the thing that you are living for is the work itself, you're not free. You're a slave. You're enslaved to that pursuit. And it's an endless enslavement. It's an endless enslavement. The way that Matt Frazier and James Smith talk about this, it's it's quite identifiable in that they have this goal, this place that they're going, they're, they're thinking that it is going to satisfy some sort of longing in their heart. It's going to satisfy them on a deep level of giving a, a sense of identity and purpose and meaning if we can only reach this spot. But it is an illusion. It is an illusion. But when you go to the place that they're going, which is saying, ah, but then I realize it's the it's the grit and the hard work that that is the goal itself. That it's unto itself. And that's my purpose. That is, that is equally as hollow. That is, it, it doesn't give any greater sense of purpose, meaning, or identity in our lives. Now, the prophet Solomon writes about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. I highly recommend you read it. You know, watch out. It can be a little, it can swirl you into a dark and uh, existential place. But he says, vanity, vanity. All of life is vanity. All of toil and striving, it's vanity. It's striving after the wind. That we strive and toil and we gather only to die and leave it to someone else. Probably someone we don't know. It's all vanity. He, he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's a book of Proverbs and sayings, but it's really him reflecting on what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And he says, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. So this is very similar to what Matt Frazier is talking about. But he goes on and says, for the one who pleases God, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. What he's saying here is that you can't have enjoyment apart from God. 
He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from God, who can eat and have enjoyment? The world is searching for enjoyment. They're searching for purpose. Each and every person is searching for identity and wholeness to, to be filled with some sort of significance and meaning and, and, and rationality for their life. But that only comes from the divine. That only comes from God. But those who don't have that are busy gathering and collecting. Now notice both groups, those who fear God and those who don't, both groups gather and collect. Both groups seek to find enjoyment in their work, but one group loses it all. One group, it's just toil and it's vanity. It's striving after the wind. Another passage, he says, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. What's driving you and me? Envy of our neighbor, wanting something that someone else has. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eye? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And he closes the entire passage, the book of Ecclesiastes, with saying, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. King Solomon, the prophet Solomon, talks about how God has put eternity into man's heart. That there's eternity. And that is what Matt is talking about, searching for. That is what James Smith is talking about, searching for, is that how do we fill the eternal void in our heart? And it's not filled with riches. It's not filled with fame. It's not filled with prosperity. It's not filled with having the world's greatest friends. It's filled with something that is eternal. And we can never fill something that is eternal with something that is finite and frankly passing away with every waking moment. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the show. This week, go out and own your future by fearing God, by not being afraid of the, the thought police that are chasing people down left and right, but fear God, keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. Thanks for listening. Go out, own your future.